I was just watching those two twin six-year-old boys walk out. God bless their parents. Could you imagine twin six-year-old boys? Who? Oh, yeah, Ray, yeah. Several of you. Hey, let's begin today by taking our scripture and turning to Colossians chapter 4. Colossians 4, we're going to look at verses 2 through 6. If you have a, an app, a Bible app, punch that. If you have a leather-bound Bible like I do, we'll turn and open there. And then in a moment, we're going to put the passage up on the screen. Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 to 6. We really are kind of not in a series. It's like a non-series series. But as we round out this book that we've been in all year, uh, we I guess you could call it maybe the last few weeks here, we could call it... Family, work, and witness. And we looked a couple of weeks ago, some of you know, just at the biblical advice in Colossians 3 about the result. If the word of Christ is allowed to dwell in us richly, then uh, there's good advice about what um, parents ought to do. Husbands and wives and children and parents. And then there's uh, what we looked at last week about just the employer-employee relationship. Seeing your, your work as not so much a job and not even as a career, but as a calling. And then Colossians 4.1 is kind of a spillover from that. But we're going to look at Colossians 4, 2 through 6 and talk about our witness, about um, just sharing our faith in this uh, day and time. Y'all there? Colossians 4. And uh, you know what I'm about to do, don't you? It happens when you get in the mid-40s. I'm not there yet. but Colossians 4, 2 through 6. Continue steadfastly in prayer being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you are to answer each person. Now with your Bibles open... Make a, if you'd like to underline or circle, do that, or just make a note of the following words. Declare in verse 3. Make clear in verse 4. Ought to speak in verse 4. Verse 5. Speech be gracious, seasoned with salt. And then lastly, answer each person. There's a lot about what you and I say. When I was in college, I heard it said before that before we talk to God about man... We ought to talk to man about God. And if you've ever wondered if that's true theology, here it is, right here. Be open, be prayerful, be watchful, talk to God, and pray that God would give you an opportunity. Do you guys ever do that? Do you ever pray for open doors? Ever pray for God to open a door? Now, probably everybody in the room has prayed for God to open that relational door at some point, right? Like, ooh, Jesus, open that door right there. Right? You ever prayed that prayer? There's a door I'd like to see open. God, open it up. It's a jar, but open it wide up. We pray for different doors, don't we? But let's put this in context. Let's be spiritual because it's Sunday morning. Spiritual like Sunday morning. Like we could do a Lionel Richie song there. But do you ever pray for open doors that God would open up a door for you to be able to bless somebody, for you to be able to share your story, for you to be able to tell them about your faith and how it's meaningful for you and what Jesus does? Ever pray for that? You know, we, I think we can do it now, Lord. We've got 12 of our people in South Africa. They boarded the jet airplane yesterday and have flown over. It's basically Gary and a bunch of cute young girls. 
And it's funny how that works out, right? I'm back here preaching, and he's in South Africa with pretty girls. But we're praying, right? A lot of you liked it on Facebook. And some of you mentioned, God bless these folks. And what are we doing? We're praying for them. We're praying for traveling mercies and all that. We're praying that God would open up a door as we continue our partnership with Restoration Hope, open up doors for them to love on children. But what about you? What about right here? What about praying for open doors right where you and I live? That's what this passage is about. The dictionary defines word as the smallest unit of meaningful linguistic communication. Now, we all know what a word is, but we all probably need to be reminded, instructed this morning that a word is anything but small. You know know that? Words are not small. Now, words... uh, also, can the meaning cannot be readily apparent. Not all words, right? I, I learned this week that the word run has 26 different definitions in the dictionary. The word set has 45. In fact, if you told me this morning, Robert, stop, I would wonder, what do you mean? Do I stop in the name of love? Stop because it's hammer time? Or stop, collaborate, and listen? Because ICE is back with a brand new invention. What do you mean by stop? What do we mean by the words that we use. James, sort of the Proverbs of the New Testament, James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, if you want to dig a little deeper. It's a great thing to read later. But in this passage, the writer gives us some metaphors of what the tongue is like. And the common thread, as you'll see in a moment, it's all about something small can have a big effect. The metaphors are are as follows. The, The tongue is like a bit. A small bit can control a large animal. The tongue is like a rudder. A small piece of wood can control a huge ship in heavy winds. The the tongue is like a fire. Just a a little spark can ignite a destructive, flaming force. Uh, The tongue is like a poison. Just a little bit of snake venom can kill a large prey. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 18. This is is 18a. It says that there is one who speaks like the thrust of... Of a sword. Would your family say that about you? Could anybody say that about you? There is one who speaks. It's like the thrust of a sword. If if we use knives the way we use words, there'd be a lot of dead bodies lying around. And this passage is telling us that in some ways, if we're to believe Proverbs, that we all have a concealed weapon, if you will. A weapon without a permit, a weapon without training, a weapon for many of us that's without restraint. It can be harmful, but the last part of that passage, you'll have to look at it later, Proverbs 12, 18b, says that the tongue just doesn't harm, but it's also a healing force. As I've studied Proverbs, some of you know we got a men's group. We meet at 6.30 on Friday morning. It's not for a lot of you. It's kind of the Navy SEALs of small groups. We're ultra-spiritual, elite, the godliest of all people here. But we meet at 6.30 at Brent's across the street, and we've just been taking a simple approach. We just read Proverbs and talk about it. And in Proverbs, as it talks about the tongue an awful lot, I've kind of systemized it. It tells us really five ways or types of words that are harmful, that do harm. Rash words, harsh words, backbiting words, empty words, many words. Some of us, we just talk a lot, don't we? I took a couple of our college kids before they left for the break to see a movie the other night. We went to see the new Robert Redford movie, All Is Lost. You heard about this movie? If you see the trailer, go watch it later. On the, not now, but later. If you see the trailer, basically the whole, all the words, all the talking is on the trailer. And that's it. 
Now, could you imagine how that frustrated somebody like me? I was angry when the movie ended. I'm like, oh, no, there's got to be more. Well, like Tom Hanks and Castaway. Where's Helen Hunt? You know, there's got to be romance and fun and intrigue. And there's got to be conversation. There's got to be words. Proverbs is saying that too many words is, is a bad thing. But just as Proverbs says that harsh words, rash words, backbiting words, empty words, many words can do harm, it also gives us some categories of words that can heal. It says gentle words, timely words, soothing words, uh, precious words, gracious words. Those are the words that if we use them will bring healing to the people around us. This morning I want us to look at Uh, this idea of what we say. Because this passage to me is saying what I've learned in communication, that every sentence, every poem, every song, every story, every every communication, every half-mumbled sentence possesses both science and art. Let me tell you what I'm talking about. Ladies, let's say that you're married and you feel like your husband is getting a little bit conceited. You can look at him and say, Honey, you're very conceited. That'd be science. It's what you say. Or you could look at him and say, you know, babe, the trouble you and I have is that we're both in love with the same man. That would be, that would be art, right? Patrick Henry said, I don't know the court, your course of action, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. Now, do you imagine those words would still ring true if, if Patrick Henry had said, fellas, I don't know what y'all going to do, but I'm going to throw in with the revolution. Right? I mean, there's something to be said about, about stating something, and, and words are, are like that. Uh, FDR, we have nothing to fear but fear itself. Would those words ring to us if he'd have said something like, well, we don't, all we've got to worry about is our own paranoia? There's something to be said for how we use our words, how we arrange them, how we think about them. And I think the best communicators and the people, I'm not talking about on the stage necessarily, I'm talking about in real life, the best communicators are those who think about the science and art of their words. Now as Christians, we go to seminary. We learn the Greek and the Hebrew and some of us the Aramaic and we learn how to proclaim the message of Christ. Some of us were involved in campus ministries where we hit the campus and the beaches and even the bars and we went out to meet people, most of them drunk, and we would proclaim Jesus to them. And the idea was, we know the truth, let's share the truth, let's lay it on them because Jesus said in Matthew 9, the harvest is plentiful, right? Let's just go out there and let's harvest, let's tell everybody what we know. But Paul is saying, there's something to be said in our speech For number one, being gracious. You see that word? Be gracious in your speech. Now that root word, that big word is grace. Write that word down, grace. How can you and I show grace in conversations? If we're going to be prayerful, watchful, thankful, if God's going to open up doors to allow us to talk to someone beyond new sports and weather, how are we going to show grace to them? The first thing I think that Paul demonstrated to us is that we can use questions. We can ask questions. In Acts 18.4, it says this about the Apostle Paul, that he gathered in the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he what? He was seeking to persuade. 
In other words, he talked about proclaiming a lot. It's mentioned three times in the letter to, to, to Colossians alone. But he wants to proclaim Christ. You ought to proclaim Christ. But deeper than that is we want to persuade people. And to be persuasive is to ask questions. Now, what do questions do? The first thing questions do is it demonstrates, they demonstrate humility. They demonstrate humility. I've never had someone in all my years of talking to people about my faith as God opens the door. I've never had someone come back to me and say, you know, Robert, I've been thinking a lot more about that lecture you gave me. Never had that happen. But I have through the years had several people come back to me and say, Robert, I've been thinking about that question you asked me. And questions help us demonstrate humility, not a false humility. Why is it not a false humility? Because we don't know everything. And when you ask a question, you show that you don't know. Now, let me talk to some of you today. The church, we are giving ourselves a bad rap because we think if you know Jesus, you know everything. And do you know this morning, would you be open enough to the idea that your views on all the social issues of our day may not be entirely accurate? Do you think you can still learn? And do you think this Jesus, who, by the way, if you read the Gospels, was terribly evasive, hard to pin him down? Do you think, though, that because you know Jesus, that you know everything? And God has shown me, ask questions of people. It's not false humility. There's just things that I need to know. Now, here's what I have learned. That... There are unbelievers who have a different solution than I have. But we almost always have the same concern. I remember years ago, I said, man, I said to somebody, man, don't you think that president ought to be impeached? And he said, no. But what if I would have said to him, don't you think that's terrible what that president did? Cheating on his wife, lying about it to America. Everybody has that concern, right? That's a way to build an agreement. That's a way to ask a question that would solicit a response and that would show you what you have in common. Years ago with Campus Crusade, I studied at a summer institute called the Communications Center. And the idea of the Communications Center was to teach young believers, men and women, how to go talk, how to speak, how to write, how to do graphic arts, all of that. And the public speaking part was, you get this, is overcome your fear of being up in front. Learn to give a talk, give an informative, informative speech, give a persuasive speech. And then the, the second half of the summer, we not only had to give speeches, but we had to, take, we had to do Q&A after the speech. Whatever you talked on, you would have to let the audience ask you questions. Now, can you imagine the fear in the group when, that, when we were introduced to that idea? Now, pretend you were with me that summer at the communication center and your coach in your group said to you, the next speech you give, you've got to take questions from us. Now, that was a bright group of people. What would your first fear be? What would you say? What if they ask me something I don't know, right? What if, I mean, I gave a good polished speech. I had my three points. I had the poem. It all fit together. It sounded good. And then I just had to take questions. What if they ask me something I don't know? And the coach, our coach said to us, you should, you ready for this? He said, you should say, I don't know. And when you and I say we don't know about something, everything, 
we demonstrate humility that invites people. And I think Paul would say it's grace and it's even salty. It longs for people to continue the conversation. Another thing that answering questions does is it allows people to come up with the answers themselves. Judith Guest wrote a novel many years ago called Ordinary Person. And in this novel, she depicts a young boy tormented by his brother's death. He struggles in life, and he can't articulate the struggle. He gets to a point where regularly after school, he goes to see a psychiatrist. She talks, she asks questions, she probes. And at a real climatic moment in this novel, Ordinary People, this young boy, not knowing that his guilt is real, but not knowing why of the guilt, he, he has this breakthrough moment where he ends up in the, the doctor's arms, in the psychiatrist's arms, weeping. And he's saying, uh, he, he came to understand that his guilt was he thought he should have died instead of his brother. And he, as he's weeping, he says to her, why didn't you tell me? And she says to him, you needed to say it. And some of us think sharing our faith is telling people all that we know about Christ and everything else in the world. All, all that's wrong with them and where they don't get it. And then it's forcing somebody to pray a prayer that we've told them to pray. But we need to pull back. We need to have more grace. We need to understand the art of asking questions. That It will, it will show humility. It will invite a response. And it will help people learn to say it for themselves. They will come up. With a conclusion, God willing. To be graceful, we need to ask questions, but we also need to find common ground. We need to find agreement. A lot of us go for argument before agreement. Now, it was said of Paul that he was seeking to persuade people. If you read Acts chapter 17, you'll see it's one of my favorite passages of Scripture as it uh, unfolds. We see Paul, who before cable TV, amateur philosophy was really the big sport of the day. It boasted such celebrities as Plato, Socrates, and Aristotle. They loved to sit around talking about truth, beauty, love, and justice. They debated and dissected and looked at the big issues of life in a very in-depth way. And Acts 17 gives us this story of Paul walking around ready to engage with the amateur philosophers on Mars Hill in Athens. And now think about all that Paul did not have in common with the men of Athens. Paul was a Jew. They were Greek. Paul was monotheistic. They had many gods. Paul was committed to one way, one truth, one life. The Athenian people loved all the new ideas. Acts 17 itself says the, the, the people of Athens, they loved new ideas. They loved to entertain the ideas, but they would commit to none of them. Those were big differences, wouldn't you say? But what does Paul do? Paul doesn't call them heathens or pagans, or he doesn't go after their idols in the most hateful way. But Paul finds common ground with them. In Acts 17, put that passage up if you will, Laura. Paul stood up in the meeting and he said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. Now, what we would say today is, hey, you and I, me and you, we're both spiritual. Now that's what you have in common. Most human beings in this culture, we share the same concerns. We have different solutions, but we share the same concerns. And all of us 
are in some way religious people, people of faith, spiritual people, because we have a restless mind. We have eternity set in our hearts, Ecclesiastes 3.11. We want to know about truth, beauty, justice, the life thereafter. And Paul finds agreement. He didn't go to the areas where they disagree. He says, let's, let's look at the areas where we do agree. You're religious. And he looks at them. And I love this. Paul's, it, Acts 17 tells us that Paul quoted their poets and their philosophers. He didn't have his head in the sand. He thought it was okay to see what the rap artists were putting down. To maybe check out some of the movies. To read from some of the maybe the hateful, angry Christian atheists on the New York Times seller list. He wanted to hear what they were saying. He built a bridge because he quoted their poets and their philosophers. And in Acts, it tells us, in Acts chapter 22, I believe it is, Paul says... I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. Here's what Paul is doing. He's finding agreement in the sense. He said, hey, I'm a real person too. I'm from around here. Here's where I went to school. This is mom and daddy and them. This is how I was raised. You see, people need to know. Uh, People do know that as a believer, you believe in heaven and hell, God and angels and demons, but they also need to know that you're not from Mars. And Paul is saying, hey, here's where I'm from. I'm like you. This is my past. When Paul would say to those at Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 7, we didn't just share the gospel, we shared our lives. Paul is sharing his story and sharing his life. If you want to find agreement, listen to somebody's story. Ask them about theirs. Tell them your own and you'll find a lot that you agree about. And Paul says, man, I want to persuade, but in doing so, I'm going to ask questions. I'm going to know what you're learning. I'm going to know what's important to you. And I'm going to tell you about where I'm from. You're going to find out I'm from around here too. We have a lot in common. If you want to build grace, if you want to be gracious in your speech with unbelievers, for God to open up a door of opportunity for you, then you need to, be, you need to ask questions and you need to find agreement. Now look at that phrase, seasoned with salt. Circle that word salt. Does it, does it remind anybody of the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth? Now back then in Palestine, salt was much more major than it is today. It was a big deal. Now, today I learned that there's a, a variety of uses for salt. Of course, it's ever-expanding. But let me, let me let you guess. What's the number one use for salt in modern-day America? Would you know? Anybody want to hazard a guess? It might be different if you live in Mississippi. Number one, I don't know if any of you got it right. Number one, 51% of Salt in America today is used for de-icing roads. Now, we said goodbye to a lot of our college students. I don't know if we have any Yankees in the house this morning, but a lot of our... Right there? Okay, got some, got some Michigan represented. And... Um, ow, ow! Um, Yankee thing. Um, but a lot of our Bellhaven kids are up in the Midwest and the Northeast right now. Right? They got this month-long break, and they know about salt de-icing roads, right? Is it Electra? Is that the storm that's hitting the nation right now? 51% of salt is used to de-ice roads. 8% is used around the table. Now, in ancient culture, salt was very prominent. And they, they of course, discovered its uses progressively. 
the first thing they discovered is that salt is a preservative. Now, it was common back then, I've just got to say it, it was common back then to see some dead bodies. They weren't refined like us. Do you remember when Katrina happened? Do you remember the horror from New Orleans? And do you remember that there was a few instances of just some bodies being left? And it became political. It became angry. Where's the president? Where's the Democrat? Where's the Republican? Where's the local? Who's taking care? Where's the emergency? What, what is going on here? This is America. There shouldn't be bodies lying in the streets. Nobody's at war. This is not the Gaza Strip. This isn't World War I or II or Vietnam or Korea or somewhere. This is New Orleans. But back then, people saw dead bodies more than we do today. In fact, the psalmist prayed uh, this prayer. Listen to this. You will not allow your holy one to see decay. That's a prayer of saying, God, you're going to take care of me in my death. And you're even going to take care of me after my death. You're going to give me dignity in this. They discovered that salt was a preservative when it comes to human life. And it, it kept corruption and decay at bay. They also discovered that it was a preservative in food. It, this was a life or death issue. Uh, food in times of famine. Salt was vital. They discovered salt to be a pleasure item. They, at some point back then, discovered that God had made taste buds. And that certain taste buds really get enlivened when it touches salt. They discovered that salt had a real, it was prized. It had a real high quality to it. It was really valued. Now, historians see this a little differently, but most historians that I read this week believe that that salt uh, helped build all the cities in Italy, uh, including the city of Rome with the salt works, the salt factories, that soldiers themselves were paid in salt. Uh, the Latin word for salt is sal, S-A-L. That's where we get our word salary. Have you ever heard someone say, man, they are, they're worth their salt. She's worth their salt. That's where we get that expression. Uh, salt back then, because it was so highly prized, it actually provoked and financed wars back then. If one nation invaded another, we would say that nation got assaulted. Not really. I made that one up, but that's just lesson. Um, but Plato said that salt is a season from the gods. Homer said essentially the same thing. Jesus said, you're the salt of the earth. You get it? The idea is that you and I would have a preserving effect. That we would cause preservation. That we would ward off decay and corruption. That, that we would promote zest and spice in life. That we would point people to what's prized and highly quali- high quality stuff. Three things about salt I want to give you. Salt doesn't exist for its own sake. You ever had somebody over for dinner and they're at your table and they're like, whew. Man, that is some good salt. I got to go home and switch brands. Never happened, has it? Never will. Salt doesn't call attention to itself. You're never going to be somewhere and go, man, I'm hungry. I'm going to get home and eat me a bowl of salt. That'll never happen. If it does, let me know. Lastly, salt's calling is to lose itself in something bigger than itself. You get that? So when Jesus says to you, you are the salt of the earth, realize your dignity. Realize he is speaking into you, man. He is saying to you that there is a way to live and it's purposeful. Makes you wonder why 
we have a reputation for being stodgy and boring and dry, right? Salt adds spice and zest. That's a sermon in and of itself. Don't you think? Some of you are dreadfully boring. It's sad. You're uptight. You're killing me. You really are. You're killing me. You know who you are? You want me to call you out? But salt is about something else. Does your life complement Jesus? I think it was about a year ago I read a survey of what, what we want. Here's the culture that we're up against in being salt. Here's a description of 20th, 21st century expectations. Here's what we want. Survey says, we want to live in good health. We want to have a long life. We want to be slim and physically fit and toned. We want to have great hair, makeup, and body shape. We want to be intelligent, articulate, and computer savvy. We want to get into a good school. We want to do well in school. We want to be popular, sexually desirable, without being promiscuous. We want to pursue all of our gifts and talents to the point of mastery. We want to marry a Christian who has met all the criteria. We want to communicate, have romance, share chores, have share chores, have date nights. We want to have a beautiful home with walls painted this year's cool colors, clean, well decorated, and organized. We want gourmet, low fat meals or low carb, high protein. We want to make our baby food from scratch. We want beautiful landscaping. We want kids cute, healthy, smart, well behaved, to get in the right schools, escape all the danger of peer culture, but still be well liked and popular. We want to do ministry. We want to be wise. We want to have a quiet time, be a prayer warrior, a Bible student. We want to be rich without being snotty. We want to be confident but not abrasive, humble, and spiritual. We want to create family traditions with holidays and meaningful and beautiful. We want to raise children in the faith and don't change them, don't damage them physically. We want deep friendships, extended family relationships. We want to write letters, remember birthdays and anniversaries and send gifts. We want to keep in touch with old friends. We want to come to Bible study. We want to be relaxed, friendly, and easygoing. Man. Let me just state the obvious. You're not going to get all that. You're not going to get all that. And if some of you are trying really hard and some of you are close to all that, nobody likes you. <laughs> nobody. Which negates half the list, right? So it's pointless, self-defeating. It's futile. But what if we focused on... Seek ye first the kingdom. And all these things, whatever these things will be, He'll determine it, not you. But all these things will be added to us. I'm going to close by reading the not-so-sexy part of what Jesus said in Matthew 5.13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You see, Jesus is saying that if we want to have the culture and have everything the culture has and live according to the culture, then we're going to lose our saltiness. And that's not a very pleasant passage, is it? To be cast out, to be trampled on. You, you lose the impact. You forfeit your witness. Nobody's going to find you to be winsome and compelling. Your, your speech is going to be obnoxious or it's just going to be harsh. It's not going to build life into people. I learned this week that it takes six months to build a Rolls Royce. It takes 13 hours to build a Toyota. Anybody drive a Toyota? Nothing wrong with a Toyota. Anybody drive a Rolls Royce? See me after. But you know, to build takes time, doesn't it? And the nicer something is, the harder it is to build. 
But it's so easy. I'm guessing it didn't say this, but I'm just guessing I could I could destroy a Rolls Royce as easy as I could a Toyota, couldn't you? I mean, if, if that's a, just to destroy, to tear it down. But words are that way. To build something really nice, where lives flourish, where there's a church where people long to get here because they know they're going to be spoken into. We're going to build life into people. Homes that can be that way. That takes a while to build, but it doesn't take much to knock it down. Man, my prayer is that we'll be a Rolls Royce. That our speech, that your speech will be seasoned. It'll be gracious. It'll be salty. People will want more. The alternative is not too good, is it? According to Jesus. Not me. Let's pray. God, we do want to um, we do want to ask you to help us talk to people better. As believers in Jesus, we don't want to just proclaim where we ask people to sit down and shut up while they listen to us, but we want to persuade. And maybe that persuasion is slowing up. Maybe it's realizing there is a harvest and there's a time of reaping, but there's also a time to sow, a time to maybe go slow, a time just to ask a question or two here and there and not to give our opinion on everything. Lord, help us to build bridges and help us to be people that other people want to be around. God, I pray for the church and for our church. I pray for open doors. We pray it for our 12, 12 of our beloved in South Africa now. We pray it for the ministries we're partnering with like Red Door and the Phoenix Initiative and the families we're helping. I pray that you would give us more and more doors of opportunity that we would be thankful, watchful, prayerful. And Lord, I pray that we would talk about big things. God-sized ideas and values. And our words that are harsh and rash, the backbiting words, the empty words, the many words, Lord, remove them from us more and more and give us gentle, soothing, truthful, righteous, pleasant, gracious words. Jesus, in you we pray. Amen.